This is Olga Salinas, and welcome to Ponytails, conversations and coffee with amazing people, both within the College of Health Sciences and external to our organization here at Boise State University. They are wise, they're bright, they're funny, just overall cool. I'm so glad you're here. There we go. Welcome, everybody, to Coffee and Conversations with Olga Salinas from the College of Health Sciences at Boise State, Student Services and Academic Advising. And joining us today is a faculty member from the Respiratory Care Department here at Boise State University. And I should preface that an outstanding faculty member <laughs> from our outstanding program in respiratory care here at Boise State University. Professor Jody Lester, thank you so much for coming here and joining us today in this little Zoom. I've got my coffee. I don't know how where you are sitting with yours. Uh, but. I guess the best I have available is lotion. So I don't okay, think, I don't. I won't try drinking that. So. All right, but no, I'm happy to be here. It's great. Um, I know that you have some really interesting topics to cover with us today. We're going to talk about evidence-based practice. We're going to talk about patient-centered care. But before we get into that, I'd really like our listeners to get to know you as a person a little bit as well. And if you could just, um, one of the things, if you could identify for us your role here at Boise State University, perhaps even a little bit of your history here. Yeah, and it's been a long history. I actually started in 1980 as faculty in the Department of Respiratory Care. So I've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, it really happened to work out that I was able to graduate, work a couple of years, and then um, get a full-time faculty position. Uh, I also was able to continue to practice respiratory care at the local hospitals. And so that was kind of the best of all worlds. But yeah. I fell into respiratory care probably like a lot of people did. I had no clue what it was. I was interested in pre-med. And then I went to my first uh, semester of college and did college things. Mm -hmm. I had a great social life, but I had a horrible <laughs> GPA and that doesn't work out really well when you're an invertebrate zoo and there's actually a betting pool of whether you'll show up in class that day. Um, I also remember oh. I had a math class and I was not going to be that freshman that said, where is this class at? And so I just didn't go. And if you don't go to class, guess what you get on your transcript? You get an <laughs> oh It was this you amazing... Um, I went from, you know, the uh, really successful high school student, graduated a semester early and thought I was all that, and then realized, you know what, um, pre-med's probably not a, the best choice for me. I was still interested in healthcare. Um, it wasn't just the grade, because I realized that, just like a lot of your listeners, you can mm -hmm. make up for bad performance if it's just a semester, right? If it's more than that, right. it gets a little iffy. But um, I think a lot of us kind of do that. We decide that, hey, you know, the social life's pretty fun of college too. And uh, I, but I looked at the profession itself and just for me, because I knew I wanted a family, I knew I wanted to be actively involved with that family. Mm -hmm. I was watching how many hours physicians put in. And for me, a personal decision, it was maybe I need to go a different direction. And so I looked at nursing and I had an older friend that lived across the street and talked to her and she said, you know what? you have the kind of personality that should check out respiratory therapy. And yeah. I would say respiratory therapists are known as the, we know how to get down and get it done, but we're also mm -hmm. the people who love to have fun. And so um, mm -hmm. I, it's really been a profession that was a match for my personality and I've loved every day and I could be a respiratory therapist. Well, I think, and this is from ex external observation of what happens within the department, 
I love what you just said right there because I absolutely saw the students in our department in the respiratory care working hard during the day, working hard late into the afternoons and into the evenings. And yet I could see the enjoyment as well because they would post pictures on Facebook together of them studying and being laid out sprawled across tables and stuff like that late into night into finals. But they, they built a really kind of fun community to get through the hard work. And I think that's one of the things that this department does particularly well. You guys really build a sense of home and community and um, we're in this, we're going to go through this together as difficult as this, we're all coming along, right? We're all coming along together. Truly appreciate that about your department very much, Judy. Um, and, I, and I love that you use the word community, right? Because that mm -hmm. really does describe, I think, uh, a successful place that you want to be. That you, mm -hmm. as you said, you have people that support you that are living the same experiences and you know that it's hard, but right. you realize the way we're going to be successful in this is we all help each other. Exactly. And beautifully done. Well, I love it. I know we need to get to the things that you want to talk about. Um, and there's more things I want to talk about with you. Uh, but let me ask about the topics then, because you had identified evidence-based practice and patient-centered care. Can you provide a definition for the listeners of what this means? Yeah, I How think- How they interact? Um, yeah, with evidence-based care, to me, it means there's really three components. It's involving a, a patient's perspective and beliefs and their engagement in the process. It's using the practitioner's best, um, I guess, best skills and abilities. And then it's also involving what is the best evidence. In other words, reading medical journals, looking at studies. It may be that they haven't been formally published yet, but maybe they're available through the internet. Maybe it's that they were presented in a poster presentation. And with evidence-based care, I think we really have real life examples right now with the COVID-19 mm. to tell us, is there, you know, we hear all about fake news and we hear yeah. about people posting, you know, just their opinions on Facebook as fact. And I mm -hmm. think as um, consumers of information, but especially as, as healthcare providers, we need to know sources that we can go to that will help us see, is there really evidence to support this practice? So is there evidence to support that antiviral uh, specific one resmedivir works for COVID-19? And, and yeah, there was a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association recently. And so we've seen practitioners move towards giving those severe patients resmedivir uh, earlier. We, mm -hmm. um, have, we see that there's evidence to support wearing a mask and doing social distancing. And sometimes we look historically, like we go back to the, the pandemic, the Spanish flu of uh, 1918, and we look at what worked there because they didn't have vaccines. And we see that social distancing and mass work. So it's looking for historical evidence. It's looking for current evidence, but it also explains um, Olga, I know that you have your degree. I'll bet what you learned in school has changed because of literature and research. Absolutely. And so it's staying current, right? That's the way we Correct. stay current is we, we read evidence and hopefully then we take that into our practice and we share with others, like you said, that community. Can we share that and translate it into doing what's best for patients? And I think that ties really nicely to patient-centered care where we move from this old model of when I went to the doctor, they did all the talking. 
Um, you and I talked before we started in this podcast about how we feel nervous with each other. Right. And we take those same conversations or those same apprehensions with us when we go to medical appointments. I'll bet all of us are familiar with, we assume that role of, in most cases in the old model, the, the doctor is going to do all the talking and I'll just be a consumer of what they tell me. And very now passive, right? Exactly. A very passive experience, right? And now we're moving that into how do we involve patients in their care, especially since they can access a lot of information on the internet? Can we direct them to sources that help them be effective partners? Right. I love that. So this was so much just in that one piece. One of the key things I took out, no, but it's wonderful. One of the key things I took out of that, of course, and I want to point out um, to our listeners is the, the, the continuing um, education that providers have to maintain. It is a constant kind of thing. It's not a one and done in any field where you're considered a professional, absolutely not, not a one and done, that seeking out reliable sources of information is the critical piece, knowing how to identify what those reliable ones are, and then bringing that into the work that we do. Can you perhaps provide um, a more specific example then of evidence-based care and patient-centered care, something that somebody could say, oh, okay, this is an example of exactly, you just gave us a little bit of an overview, like in the past, oh. just the doctor. Can you give us what like a current experience might look like? I sure can. Let's look at COVID-19, especially respiratory therapists were involved in the care of those, is it, are involved in the care of those patients because so much of what their disease is, is respiratory. Mm -hmm. And we treated those patients as if they had what we considered to be adult respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And because we were ventilating them and treating them as if they were just our typical ARDS patient, we found that we were having fairly high mortality rates. And we had to take everything we knew about current practice, about how we ventilate patients and how we try to keep patients off ventilators and, and what medications we give them. And we had to throw that all out for just a minute and really look at the model of illness with COVID-19 and what was happening in those patients' lungs. And we, the evidence that we took away is if we can avoid trying to put a tube into the trachea, intubating those patients, if we can mm -hmm. avoid keeping them off the ventilators, they'll have better outcomes. If we can have them do simple things like lay on their belly and mm -hmm. let the, um, the fluid and things that are accumulating in the back part of their lungs now kind of move and migrate and hopefully the body will clear those things. Uh, we found a whole bunch of evidence that helped us identify. And because that was shared, because of the amazing technology that we have to be able to share with each other, it was we were able to spread that information so the other facilities could begin using those same practices. And so I think that was a really immediate, even without published studies, it was people's, I guess, realities of living with this, but then they've recognized the need of, you can't just send out an email or you can't just publish at one conference. Right. You need to put that in medical journals so that everybody can see it or in healthcare journals. And right. so I think that's been an example of that. For the patient-centered care, let's take it to a student perspective again. Mm -hmm. I think the old model of being a student in any kind of program at the university was you expected to go in and be passive. You use that word passive, right? Mm -hmm. So we expected to go in, sit in a class and have somebody give us this information. And if we're gonna be evidence-based practitioners, if 
we're going to be able to keep current once our program is done. We have to know what resources we can use, but most importantly, how do we use those? And so I've seen our classrooms move from a model of students being passive to students being active, to students being partners in their learning. And so I think it's really easy, especially as a student, hopefully you're living that model of student-centered education, and you can easily translate that to patient-centered care then. What would that look like? Right. So I'm taking up a lot of the time right here. You're actively listening though. Yes. And then I should stop for a while and let you contribute too. And we truly have a conversation. We're collaborating to make this podcast successful, just like we could collaborate as a, a patient and a healthcare provider to help that patient's care be successful and meet the outcomes that they have. Excellent. I love it. So let's take that a step further then and think about our students that have been admitted into your program, into respiratory care, and now are in their field because you go very quickly out into the field with students. Our students are not passive in their learning whatsoever, right? I mean, in that first term, they're out on rotations. So um, how would you say they uh, start to incorporate this? They, They become confident enough to start incorporating this into their work and their work starts very early in their training. So that's one question. And the second question, maybe you could, so if you could personalize a little bit, maybe give us what a day in the life might look like. Um, And then what do you think happens between that student who starts in that first day and what do they look like as they graduate? What what, What do you see? Can you describe that growth for us? I sure can. And I'm going to start with that last question first, because that's probably one of my greatest joys is to see students come in and kind of have that deer in the headlights look of, um, I I remember taking a student to clinical and she passed out because we were drawing blood. And she Uh said, you know, she was heartbroken. She said, I can't be a respiratory therapist or I can't be a healthcare provider because I can't stand the sight of blood. And, and it was just helping her realize that a lot of us have had those same experiences and Mm-hmm. It usually takes someone being a partner in your learning and saying, you know what, we can work through this. If you're willing to work through this, we can find some things that will help you. And mm-hmm. I think what students in the respiratory care program, but also health science, other health science programs have found is that through the use of simulation, they can have experiences similar to what they're going to have in the hospital without that concern of I may kill someone because truly they are in positions in the healthcare facility sometimes where what they know or what they what they do, what they don't do could actually truly harm a patient. But if right. you could go into a simulation lab and have it be the approach of no one's out there to call you out and scold you, it's to help you realize in this as part of the simulation, but also to help other people who watch that simulation learn from the things that happen there. Mm -hmm. So that then we take those experiences into the hospital. And I love that we start our respiratory care students in clinicals right away. We do take the first um, half of the semester to kind of get them ready for those experiences though, Mm -hmm. how to assess a patient, how to then um, in simulation know some of those skills, like how can I tell if an Um, intravenous line is not incorrectly. Could I identify basic safety concerns for the patient? And then in our program, we pay people 
preceptors mm -hmm. to take our students to the facility. And so they're there to really help and watch that student and uh, share their expertise with those students too. Excellent. And you know, I had the great pleasure of interviewing one of our recent grads. I shared that link with you, one of our recent yeah. grads, and then seeing how that person is continuing to grow, not only walking out as a professional in her field, but then continuing to grow by taking this big leap to leave the area, leave the comfort zone and go into a major research center and go to work there. Um, that's coming up in a couple of weeks as well. So uh, really enjoy talking to our graduates in programs as well. Um, thank you so much for sharing that example of what our students experience. Olga, um, can I have you share though? Sure. You have a very personal experience, right? Because your daughter, Misol, mm. uh, went through our yes. program. And so I'd be interested in your perspective <laughs> to share of what you saw her. And, and then maybe we could compare, right? Because I saw right. Misol as a student for the very first time. I think I'd had her as an advisee for a few sessions. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. she was admitted to the program. But I'm interested in what you saw as her progression through the program from her confidence level. Yeah. And, and then if I you was, tell people amazing. where she's practicing right now, which is amazing. Sure. I'm, I'm, I was amazed at the growth. I really did. At the level of starting up from the very on, where she told me the very first time that she was in one of her clinical rotations and she was, they, the, her preceptor and the team brought her in and said, no, go ahead, you listen you listen, and that she was so tentative and putting her stethoscopes down for the first time. And she's like, I hear, I hear breath sounds. And they're like, yay, <laughs> right? Really, really supportive to where she is right now, where she's working at the Cleveland Clinic um, and which has very, been very hard hit. She works in trauma um, a lot. She's in ICU and ER a lot. And the scope of practice at the Cleveland Clinic is quite vast for respiratory care therapists. So um, to where she feels confident now in issuing, in an emergency situation, issuing uh, directives to others um, on the team of what needs to happen at this exact moment to help this patient, to save this patient's life. She told me it, the, the case caseload is very high out there. Um, and she just recently had an experience where she was left on her own to try to handle an intubation situation because there were so many emergency situations happening at the exact same moment. So she's now like constantly learning, continuing to learn because she's still going to school as well, um, but also just feeling pretty confident that she can walk in and whatever's thrown at her, she's gonna give it her all, so yeah. I mean, I think I cry more when I left her there in Cleveland than, <laughs> than you know. But yeah, how amazing for her to start out from Boise, yeah. Idaho, mm -hmm. go through the program. And as you said, be a little timid. Mm -hmm. um, definitely always a student who wanted to learn. And I, and I don't doubt that she's continuing to learn because that's what makes a good practitioner too, right? Is somebody who... Right. It's not waiting for someone to come and tell you, here's what the research says, or here's what the evidence is. They're out there digging and finding and, and reading and keeping current. But to, I celebrate in your accomplishment of her, what an amazing young woman and what an amazing practitioner she's become. To have your facility trust you with the confidence and the physicians trust you with the confidence of, you can manage this situation, right? Mm -hmm. I know there are emergencies, but they still mm -hmm. wouldn't have left her if they didn't feel like she could handle it. 
No, so this is how, how amazing that we get to see students and children go from mm -hmm. that level of, you know what, well, I think I can do this to, I can do this and I love it enough that I'm going to keep learning and keep pushing right. myself and see where I can take this. Right. I, and now, yes, absolutely. And I really, when we take a look at where our students are, have headed, Boston Mass, um, mm -hmm. University of Virginia, Cleveland Clinic, um, just, and of course, locally, those who have chosen to stay locally as well. And as their scope of practice, I think is increasing too in all of these areas because it has to, right? That's the reality of it has to and how they maintain that professionalism of what you were discussing in that evidence-based practice, how they continue to learn and how they are so focused on their patient care, right? So focused on um, the dignity and the humanity and taking care of that person in front of them at that moment. Um, certainly the stories are, are fascinating. And of course, yes, I have a long history of, it skipped a generation, right? Because my mother's a respiratory therapist, my yep. daughter's a respiratory therapist. I help respiratory therapists. <laughs> People yep. become respiratory therapists. And so, how cool that your mother was someone who influenced me for her passion for the profession. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was able to work with her. And just to see her enthusiasm after being in the profession, right? It let me know this is not something that's going to be a do, few, do a few years and be done. It mm -hmm. was, this can be a profession, and I try and tell students that. Respiratory yes. care can be a profession that you can move on and upward if you wanted to. Right. right. You can stay in the profession and move upward if you wanted to, to administration and to um, transport like lifelike transports or ECMO doing heart lung bypass kind of things. Right. But it right. is also a profession where you can just say, you know what, every day I make a difference with patients lives. And that's so meaningful to me that I'm going to be happy doing that the rest of my life. Absolutely. Life is breath. Right. Yes, I mean, is. bottom line, life yep. is breathing. It is. Judy, it you is. have shared so many wonderful things with us today. And I really hope that you'll consider coming back to do more. I would love to. Um, and just you're such a fascinating human being. I'd really like our students to know, or not just our students, our listeners to know a little bit more about you. So this is what I'm going to ask as we wrap up today. First of all, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to cover that we didn't address quite just yet? You know, that's an amazing question because that's one of the things, a type of question that would be like patient-centered care, right? Mm -hmm. If I, if you started a healthcare encounter by saying, is there anything I should know? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you've been afraid to talk to me about? Is there anything that you want me to know about your health? And so I appreciate you always asking those open-ended <laughs> questions. But so no, I think you've done a really good job. And like you said, you kind of we i'd love to come back and chat some more outstanding fantastic so in our students getting or again i keep saying students but it's it goes <laughs> the, the audience is greater than that it's just i live in that world right um so much i'd love for people to know really their professors there's the staff members the the people that work with them every day to understand that they're more than just this one thing that they see they're multifaceted mm -hmm. people and holistic view of the people that they interact with. So Jody, I'm mm -hmm. asking about you. Yeah. You have to do a lot of study. I know you have to do a lot of read, reading. I have two questions. One, what are you reading? Okay. And it may be work-related or not. And yeah. number two, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Oh boy. So um, I like <laughs> reading. Reading is my guilty pleasure, right? But I'm one of those people too that if I, I love reading murder mysteries, 
but they have to get to the end, right? So I can't just start and do casual reading of that type of genre. I start and then if it really engages me, I got to get to the end because um, I usually am the person who thinks I figured it out. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. And so I really love an author that can make me think I know who it is and it's totally not that person. But um, I really like to learn as I read too. And so I'd recommend Sam Keen. The one I read most recently is The Tale of Dueling Neurosurgeons. And wow. he is a writer that has this engaging style, but he's also, he, he teaches you the science. So it was the science of the history of brain surgery and how we learned what neurons and, and synapses and things did in the brain. He also wrote um, Caesar's Last Breath, so how appropriate for respiratory care practitioners. Uh -huh. um, but it's the science of breathing and air and the disappearing spoon and... I think the violinist thumb or something is another one he's written. And there's a new book that I'm trying to find of his, but I haven't got that one tracked down yet. All right. You guys all heard that Sam Keen. Look yeah, for this Sam author. Keen, highly recommend. You can, and, it can be your guilty pleasure, but you're learning also. Okay. And then my superpower, I would say is I really like to engage with people. I don't consider myself an extrovert. I'm probably more of an introvert. And I'm probably better around strangers than I am people that I know, which seems really ironic. But um, I in an online setting now, and I found that I have a really good ability to engage with students online. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a unique superpower. What I wish I could do is look through my screen and see everything else going on too, though, in a good way, right? Because as mm -hmm. you said, we think we know people, but we don't know all the things that they're juggling. Right. We don't see all, you know, we can all put on a happy face, mm -hmm. but we probably have a whole bunch of stuff happening that nobody except maybe our really close family or circle of friends knows is going on. And so I wish I could sometimes see, um, because I think as healthcare providers, we really don't want to throw out the help signal and say, throw me that lifeline, even though we may be drowning. I think that's one of our, I think it's something that's necessary to get us through but I also think it can be one of the drawbacks um, for us is that we are afraid to say, I need help. Mm -hmm. And whether that can be, I need mental help, I need physical help, I need spiritual help, I need a rest. I think that's something we have to get ourselves to the point that we can say, I need, I need some help. Oh, girlfriend, that's a whole conversation that you we need to have <laughs> you bring you back in for, because that is absolutely true. Jody, thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed listening to our wonderful Jody Lester here at uh, the College of Health Sciences, Boise State University. And we are definitely going to bring this woman back. She's got thank things you, to Olga. offer. I thank appreciate you. you doing the podcast. Thanks. See you all. Bye.